Hey everyone, we want to welcome you to the Floater Founder Podcast. This is a Toronto-based podcast featuring local founders across all markets. We are your hosts, Samantha Lloyd and Lyson Casey. We are going to be bringing you interviews with exciting and hardworking founders. They will be sharing their experience creating and leading a company. Thanks for listening. Hi everyone, you're here with Floater Founder. I'm your host, Samantha Lloyd, here as always with my lovely co-host, Lyson Casey. Hello everyone. Today, we are super fortunate to get to speak to Farhan Thauer. He is the former co-founder and CTO of Helpful, which was recently this year in 2019 acquired by Shopify. And today we are at the Shopify offices to speak to him all about that. So thank you so much for uh, being in this interview and uh, hosting us here today. No, thanks for having me. It's always interesting to connect with folks and listen to stories about entrepreneurship. Um, so tell us, how did you go about co-founding um, Helpful and leading the tech there? Uh, in 20, So I'd been through another acquisition, um, but in 2015, after being at uh, the acquirer Pivotal for a couple of years, um, I started to think about um, how I wanted to spend my time at work. And one thing I think a lot of people don't really do is they typically get uh, into a mode where they're going to start looking for like a new job. And um, I don't think they usually have like a framework. They just think about like, oh, this recruiter reached out to me or my friend works at that company or I read about this company and it might be interesting. And what I actually did was take a step back and said, how do I want to spend my time? And I came up with the, like, a little bit of a longer framework, but I have a short version of it where I thought about um, what would be the best way for me to kind of grow. And I came up with three things. One was how do I work with the smartest people I can find in high fidelity? The second was how can I have impact? And the third was how can I learn, be constantly learning? Uh, and so in that type of framework, what ends up happening is when you meet with people or you meet with companies, you can kind of compare it to the framework and uh, determine if it's a good fit or not. And the other thing I also did was because I had never, I was an early employee at Extreme Labs but not a founder, I thought to myself, well, if I'm going to start a company, uh, which I didn't know yet that I was going to do, um, let me write, make a list of all the unreasonable product people I know, because I'm quite reasonable. I need to pair myself with an unreasonable person, somebody who has a view of the future, like is unreasonable and impatient about why it doesn't exist. And I made a list of those folks in Toronto, and I just started meeting with them. And uh, on the top of that list was actually this guy named Daniel Dubow, um, who folks may know from the Toronto ecosystem. And uh, it was clear he was going to start a company. And in order for me to be to satisfy goal number one, which is be around extremely smart, uh, smartest people you can find in high fidelity, the only way for me to do that was be to start a company with Daniel. And so that's how that's kind of like the genesis of how we got together. And it, it's quite interesting because we didn't like start with a problem. We didn't start with any, we kind of just got together uh, to start the company. Cool. And you said you uh, that you have two uh, exits. Can you tell yeah. me a little bit about something that you learned from the first uh, exit that you were able to implement in the second one that helped you out? I mean, what's interesting about there, I think there's a few things going on. One is going through two exits. You can definitely compare and contrast, right? The the integration process, the actual M&A process, the, how you feel about each uh, you know change in your life. Um, one thing that was interesting about the acquisition of Extreme Labs by Pivotal Labs was we had a much, uh, we had a long-standing relationship, actually probably true also of Helpful and Shopify, but maybe maybe I'll get into the Pivotal one first, where we were very much running a Pivotal Labs-style company in Toronto, but focused on mobile. And so um, we kind of grew up with that company. We used a lot of their processes. We modified them to work for Extreme Labs. 
And so when the acquisition was happening in 2013, um, there was like a meeting of the minds around, hey, this is a lot of um, M, the M&A is mergers and acquisitions, and this is a lot of M, not just A. And so we actually were about 350 people, and Pivotal Labs at the time was about 350 people. So the acquisition put our two groups together in this larger group, confusingly named Pivotal. Um, but um, what was interesting about that was they really wanted us for um, you know, our expertise in mobile, our expertise in working with enterprise companies, and it was, um, it was a great way for us to be part of a larger product company that was based in San Francisco that was then going to IPO. So like a very exciting story, very uh, prestigious brand name for the company. It was the right thing to do for Extreme Labs. The Pivotal office in Toronto is quite successful. It's still um, here and growing. So there's a lot going on there. Um, now, the difference between that and, and going to Shopify from Helpful is that, like, so Pivotal Lab, uh, Extreme Labs was 350 people. Helpful was eight people <laughs> acquisition. So much smaller. Um, integration was quite different. And I think what was interesting about Shopify was, one, it was much further along in its journey. Um, and two, it's, a, it's quite a different company. Like, I, I can compare and contrast how the companies think about things. Like, Pivotal's job was to help people transition into what they call, like, cloud-native software, how, how they think companies should write software. And so what that typically means, though, is using a very rigorous, agile methodology in order to build software. And what's interesting about Shopify is that it's very first principles based, meaning when you're approaching a problem, you try to figure out what really are we trying to solve? How do we forget about any existing solutions? What's the problem? And a coming at it from a very first principles approach. And that allows you to kind of come up with completely new ways of doing things. Mm-hmm, very cool. And did you know with both companies that you wanted to be acquired down the line? Was that a goal at all? No, I think I think that there are probably folks who start companies and then say, I'm going to create this company to get acquired. Um, I don't think that's a good way to start a company. Um, and in neither case, um, like I was pretty early to Extreme Labs, right? We were 10 people when I joined. And of course, I found it helpful. I don't think the goal was ever to be acquired. The goal is actually to build um, uh, an effective organization where you're solving pains for people and they're paying you to solve their pains. So I don't think in, any, in either case we ever looked to be acquired. It happens along the journey, in which case you might think that joining forces is going to be more powerful than going at it alone. So like, really what I saw in both cases was like a one plus one equals three. Cool. And when you go about and build products in a company, how do you go out and gauge user interests in, in your product? How do you build out features that users want? Is it simply kind of sitting them down and, and seeing how they use the product? Like, What's your process with that? Uh, again, depends per company. Um, I think there's lots of different ways to go about it. And, and one thing I've learned, you know, being like a little bit of an older person now in the industry is that there's no one way to figure this out. I think there's multiple ways. Um, actually, a really good book I read recently, actually, as part of Helpful, we use it as a lot of our philosophy, is called, a book called The Mom Test, if you've read it. But The Mom Test is really a book about talking to users and figuring out what their real pain is. Some people call this like, you know, you can figure out like the five whys or there's other frameworks which help you kind of figure out what is the underlying pain. And I think in both Pivotal and Shopify's case, they do have a process that helps you figure that out. And the way in which that works is um, sitting with users in a, in a free-form conversation, trying to get them to communicate what problems they may be going through, 
you trying to stay away as, as far as possible from solutioning, just listening to them, um, and trying to uncover what are the major pains. And the mom test is really good because it lays out a framework and question asking scenario to allow you to uncover that without actually having to, um, trying to be like, let me sell you something, right? Instead, you're trying to uncover those pains. And I think um, it's a, you know, Google, the Google has a book called Sprint. It also tries to do that. There's a lot of these frameworks out there. And I think one should kind of sit back trying to figure out which one of those might be applicable at the time um, to uncover a user's pain. Then you might move into a, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? Or showing users something. But I think that's much farther down the line. Um, that tends to be quite different than what I see, um, like the quick moving, some of the quick the quick kind of turnaround startups doing. Like for example, I saw somebody on Twitter, which I think is amazing by the way, just not the approach, where they said they were gonna create like 12 startups in 12 weeks. Like every week was a different startup, which was amazing to do that, right? Um, that being said, that was not what we were trying to do. Yeah, no, the idea of that makes me sweaty. <laughs> it's like but, it, but, it, but amazing, right? Because <laughs> yeah, you're impressive. able to start on Monday, yeah. find a problem, build it, test it, and deliver it by Friday, and then maybe something sticks to the wall, right? Yep, exactly, for sure. And the odds are something Low. should. Maybe <laughs> well, one, yeah. one maybe, might, yeah. Maybe. You never know. <laughs> I mean, if you look at the origin stories of some successful startups, they always start with a kernel of something, yeah. and that kernel doesn't tend to be, yeah, but it doesn't tend to be that much work, but it's uncovering that kernel through the journey yeah. that is the work. Yeah, definitely. And um, when you were acquired by Shopify, you, of course, also hired in Shopify, as was your team. Um, what was the process like of kind of switching from being the founder to, again, working in an executive role for a company? Again, here's a good way to contrast the two acquisitions. And I, they're mostly cultural changes. So one example is um, when we got acquired by Pivotal, for the first three months, we... Um, we were left alone and we kind of just integrated our backend systems. You switch like healthcare providers and benefits and vacation tracking software and all that stuff, but you're basically the same company. And after about three months, what you typically want to do is you now want to be part of the, the brand and culture and goal setting of the acquirer. And so, you know, in many ways you're saying, the, the team is saying to you, hey, you've done it your way for three months, now do it our way. In a, in a, in a positive way, like, hey, let's show you how we work. Let's be part of the one... Um, big pivotal brand, and um, so now we're gonna. I'm gonna learn and fall into kind of that uh, system. What's amazing about Shopify is, um, you know, I came in here, um, was here for three months. Um, you know, I, uh, we have a much smaller team, so I defaulted to doing things the Shopify way. And then in meeting Toby, you know, he kind of said the opposite. He said, "Okay, you've been here three months. You've done it our way. Now do it your way." <laughs> so it's literally the opposite. It's just a, I think a different mentality. Yeah. We talk a lot at Shopify about. Um, like autonomy and also how um, every office has this thing called centers of gravity where products are centered around that office. So there isn't one, we don't think of it, things as like having one Shopify culture. Um, and so that really stand, that's a great example of them like saying like, well, there isn't a, a culture. So what do you think it should be? What are the things that you think you want to have an effect on and listen to people about and then make and make try some experiments around? And so I think that's uh, a good cultural difference. And so that's one. I think I thought that was probably the biggest difference for me and just the approach from, you know, each CEO. Cool. Um, like movies and television always have this view of what being acquired or is like. Um, party with a yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so would you say when you went through your, your, your the first company that was acquired, was there anything that you thought was one way but ended up being completely the, the opposite? 
I mean, I don't think that we were super surprised. So in both cases, what's interesting is, and this is maybe just unique to my experience on the two acquisitions, was in both cases, I knew the founders of the company for four or five years before being acquired. So one, like that doesn't usually happen. Sometimes what will happen is that you get into an M&A process and you may not know the person for like a month and the, or a few months, and then you get acquired, and so you're just learning about each other. In, the, in both these cases, I knew the founders for a long time, and so it was very much um, like, thank, welcome to this side of the fence versus like, hey, let's get to know each other. Um, obviously, I spent much more time with them after acquisition, but I don't think there's anything super surprising. Um, actually, here's a good example. I mean, because you've known people for so long, you do think that you know everything, and in both cases, you, you, re- you realize you're like, oh, I don't know anything about how the company works because you're not there, right? So even though here's a good example at Pivotal, right? We did um, pair programming at Pivotal and in Extreme. We use Pivotal Tracker in both companies. We use continuous integration. We deploy often. We have, you know, we have, uh, we have weekly sprints. Like all these things are like processed and they're quite rigorous processes that most companies don't follow. So there was alignment there. But when we came in, we realized that, wow, we do things completely differently because, of course, we had enterprise customers. We were doing mobile projects. They were doing backend. They were working with startups. So I don't think it was surprising because we knew all that. But it was how it was crazy how stark the differences were given how aligned we were on like the big things like these were the big things and the little things we were very different on so I think that was interesting Uh, coming into Shopify what was different I think I was quite surprised at how um, how amazing it is that we can go to first principles like we're I'm typically somebody who likes to decision quickly and Shopify has like both fast twitch and slow twitch muscles meaning like you have to know when to use which tool and I'm surprised how often we use the the first principle slow twitch muscle in the right way, meaning like, well, you know, we don't care what other companies do. What do we think the right thing is for merchants? And then we come up with something that like nobody thought of or nobody's ever done before. And it's quite, uh, it's surprising how often that happens. And that is surprising because I didn't, I, I wouldn't have known that from the outside. Actually, the other thing I, I got surprised by is just how much stuff is going on in here. Yeah, because <laughs> from the outside, it definitely looks like Shopify moves fast on everything. Like they're just coming out with new products all the time. And it like should look like that one. because mm-hmm. exactly, at that stage, yeah. right, you, you may not see the, the evolution of a certain yeah. product coming out. And then it just looks like you're like, wow, I never thought of that, but it makes sense. And it's because we started with a first principles approach. Yeah, I love that. That's really cool. And um, so you mentioned you had like a long-term relationship with um, both the founders of the companies who acquired you. Do you believe that that's necessary in every acquisition or that there's a benefit there? You're asking a very important question because a lot of people ask me like how to network. Mm-hmm. Like how, how is it possible that I knew like Toby and Harley, for example, at Shopify when, you know, I guess they're celebrities, right? They're like startup celebrities, right? In the mm-hmm. ecosystem. Um, I, think, I, I, I think that it is an important skill to be able to surround yourselves with, with smart people. And I don't think it has to be for any end goal. Actually, one thing I learned from Daniel was, um, I think it comes from Adam Grant's book, Give and Take, which I haven't read. But he said that when you um, help people without um, actually thinking that there's going to be some reciprocation, so you don't say, oh, let me do you a favor because then I'll get a favor from you in return. Instead, you just do it out of like the goodness. Um, those acts tend to have more profound effect on your life, in term- whether it's karmic or whatever it is, um, than the ones in which you're like, I'll do this for your favor for you, you do it for me. And so one of the things I've always tried to do is just, if I, if I think I can be useful in some way to somebody, um, I'm happy to like offer time, expertise. And um, 
I think that hap- that happened in these cases where I'd run into, you know, whether it's Toby Harley or Rob and Edward from Pivotal. And um, sometimes I'd ask them for a favor and, or I'd, I'd say, hey, you know, happy to come in and do a talk about how we're doing mobile or whatever it is. And I think that that relationship tends to get stronger over time as you continue to, like, nurture those things. Um, it's not a thing that I see a lot of people doing. Like, here, Actually, here's a good example. I met with somebody recently who wanted to get a job at, uh, wasn't Shopify, but let's, let's assume Shopify. And uh, if they, you know, really wanted the job, what are all the things that they have done to kind of get a job at Shopify? And right now the answer was, well, they emailed careers or they applied to the job online and that's it. And I was like, doesn't look like you really want a job at Shopify, right? And they're like, what do you mean? Like applied. I'm like, okay. And they're like, and I'm talking to you. I said, okay, but that's like, that's not enough, right? Like, could you have, um, for the job you're looking at, could you have tried to figure out um, problems in the current approach that Shopify has and potentially see ways in which we can improve the product? Did you go and interview merchants who use that uh, area of uh, Shopify and figure out where where things are uh, failing the merchant? Did you set up your own store and try to figure out the things that you think could be easier to use? Did you, you know, submit feature requests? Like there's all kinds, did you try to build an app on our API? Like there's so many things you could do. Um, and I think a lot of folks aren't thinking in those ways to do those things. And I think that's the kind of approach I think uh, you want to have, whether you're looking for a job, whether you're, you know, you're networking. Like, you know, I would get that when Robin Edward and I would chat about Pivotal, I would ask all kinds of questions about the process. I'd be like, how does this work? What about this scenario? And I think, you know, in those conversations, we both uncovered like areas that we should, we could cover better or we're doing it one way, they're doing it another way. That's helpful for both sides. Um, so I think that tends to be a good way to have a relationship. And I think it's underused. Like it is like the number, I hear it, it's probably the number one thing uh, people ask me. And the only advice I really have for people is like, I give them a couple of books, um, but I don't think it really explains this idea of being helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, providing value to someone 100% of the time it will make you memorable to that person. And you've heard these stories, right? Like there's a there's a story, I mean, I think, um, I think it was, uh, I can't remember his name now, it was somebody pretty senior at Uber who, um, who just basically like signed Uber drivers up like wasn't working there, right? I, actually, one of my previous interns at Extreme, Brad, um, I remember we had an apartment in San Francisco for work and I woke up one morning, he was sleeping on the couch. And I was like, we sleeping on the couch? He's like, oh, so-and-so said it was fine. I'm like, yeah, no problem. Like, what's the story? He's like, oh, I really want to work at Yelp. I'm like, okay, what are you doing? He goes, I go to the Yelp office like every day and I sit in the reception and I work on Yelp. Like he works on the website. Like he was, he was um, writing reviews. He was messaging restaurants. Like he was working for Yelp. And of course, what do you think happened? You got a job at Yelp eventually because they're like, this dude's working at Yelp. Like that's the, that's the difference between somebody who really is like being helpful and cares versus like, I'm just going to spray and pray my resume across 20 or 30 like companies. Like, you know, I don't think you really want that. Thank you for that. Uh, to kind of shift focus a little bit, as a technical founder who has experience building technical teams, uh, can you give a little bit of advice on that and also how to set standards in place uh, that teams can work well in a, a rapidly changing tech ecosystem? Yeah, I mean, I've got a pretty opinionated view about software. And I think um, I brought those views to starting my own company. So it's kind of like putting your money where your mouth is. So one example is pair programming. So for, for folks who don't know what pair programming is, it's that when you have two engineers working on one computer, they have two keyboards, two mice, two monitors, but it's actually just one machine. And it's more like an airline, airplane cockpit where you are, there's two sets of controls and one person's flying, the other person's like 
talking to that person, but also checking systems, and together they're flying the plane to get to the destination. So pair programming is very similar. And the way we set up Helpful was using these types of principles, like we're going to use pair programming, we're going to use Pivotal Tracker, which is a, a very opinionated way to use a product management tool. We're going to deploy early and often. We're going to demo every Friday. So I had these opinions about how software should be written because of the experience I had over the last you know 10 years. And then as we were rolling, as we were using these things at Helpful, I was modifying them because they may not work right away, right? You might be like, oh, actually, this worked in a company when you're 350 people. It doesn't work at this small scale. Um, we were also building products, so we were like, we can use our product to do, like, you know, for example, we had an asynchronous video messenger, like Snapchat for work. So we used our product to do demos instead of doing the demos live. So there is modifications you have. I think it's a combination of you're trying something. You're not blindly following the process because it said something in a book or you, it worked last time but you are trying to figure out if it's going to work in your new environment. I think there's a, again, here's another book I haven't read, but I like the title, which was What Got You Here Won't Get You There. I'm pretty sure I know what the book is about. <laughs> but basically, um, I, I fully agree with that. Like what just what worked before may not work again, but try it. So we tried some things. They worked, like pair programming still worked. Um, but then maybe we, used, we moved demos to be asynchronous versus synchronous. That was better for us. So there's all kinds of um, opinions that I wanted to try. I think that um, something I don't see often enough is people who have sort of a process in mind around engineering specifically, maybe other areas too. Um, they're pretty stuck on like this is the way versus like being open to other approaches or other experiments. Actually, we had this conversation with somebody yesterday about um, gray thinking. Have you heard that term, gray thinking? So gray thinking is this idea that the world is not black and white. And if you have like a black and white view about something, you might be missing on, missing on the nuance of, uh, of a particular approach. And so using a gray thinking approach on whether it's like pair programming or agile or flex time or work from home, you're, you're likely going to come to a different conclusion. You might come to a conclusion that like, actually work from home is appropriate in some cases or working from an office is appropriate in some cases versus being like, it's always remote or, or bust. Um, and I think that's something that is um, is being missed today. Uh, and maybe it's because of our, you know, like right now we're in person and we're talking and there's nuance. I can see you nodding your head. But in uh, our world of like Slack and email, you don't see those things. And so maybe you feel like the world has to be more black and white. I don't know. Yeah, I can see that because it's hard to get like a read on people. I overuse right. emojis <laughs> to yeah. show my feelings, but I'm probably guilty of really overusing them. Um, so you've managed a team that was huge and a team that was smaller. What kind of is the main difference in controlling almost the culture of your company when you're at those two different stages? Yeah, I'm a pretty big fan of trying to be as, um, like, letting the teams be as autonomous as possible. Like, one of the interesting things about uh, running a larger team was how much responsibility we pushed down such that people felt like they had the ownership. So I think that even though helpful, you know, uh, in, at the at acquisition time was around eight people, I don't think that that eight-person team felt that much different than, like, an eight-person team inside of Extreme. And that's mostly because... We tried to have very light, like we had a we had a religious way of doing some things, and then all the rest was up to the team. So we're you know mostly we're like, okay, we you know I'll give you an example. 
we didn't have work from home. We had you had to work in the office. Um, we didn't have flex time. We had you had to work from nine to six. We had pair programming. We had you had to release every week. We had a list of things you had to do. And then if you did those things and everything else was up to you, um, and while it sounds like to some people maybe that's a, a long list of rules, actually there's lots of creativity that can st- that's still available to you. It's almost like a, like a game. Like you can say soccer, the field has to be this big. You can only use your feet unless you're the goalie if you're in here. Like there's a bunch of rules. And if you read all the rules, you might be like, that's a lot of rules. But look at the creativity that happens in soccer because the, the constraint actually causes the creativity. And so I think the same thing was true um, at Extreme. So the... I don't know if there's a lot of differences between the teams, but I think that one thing I tried to keep constant was this ability to have the team be as autonomous as possible. And I tried to play a role of like just unblocking people if they weren't able to do their best work. So I wasn't trying to be like, here's how we should do it. I was like, here's an idea. We should, you know, does it, do, do we feel like it's a contributing to having a better end product, better environment, higher productivity? Yeah, cool, let's keep it. No, okay, let's try to change it. Cool. Yeah, and um, a lot of times when you're working on a company, you can you can until you reach product market fit, mm-hmm. you don't know whether it's the right idea to work on or the wrong idea to work on. Um, when should you know that okay, this idea won't work? I'll drop it. I'll move on something else. Or when should you say okay, I got to keep iterating until I reach product market fit? It's like the hardest question in startups. <laughs> I don't I don't think there's an answer. There is there are examples of companies that have been doing the same thing for like eight years, 10 years, and then it takes off. And then there's examples of companies that things took off right away, right? Like one example I think I had was, uh, I think it was DoorDash, where they, the, the folks literally put like a, a website called paloaltodelivery.com and put a phone number and people started calling within 15 minutes, like something like that, which is insane, versus, uh, I'm trying to think of one that took a long time. I mean, a lot of the, uh, a lot of products, uh, don't just, it's not if you build it, they will come. Um, you have to spend time on growth marketing and word of mouth and and you're literally like grinding against the stone, right? Actually, Shopify is a good example, right? It wasn't, it, it, it wasn't a uh, right away people were coming to the site and building stores. It, it was a long grind, right? It's a 15-year-old company. Um, I think that, um, I mean, one thing I heard once I think was um, if you run out of ideas for growth, um, you should like you're trying to build growth, and if you if you apparently like run out of like the big ideas in growth, and that that's maybe a time to switch tactics. It's possible that you might have the right product at the wrong time. A good example was actually helpful. We built an like a Snapchat for work, which in using it, um, I feel like is still very futuristic. Like we don't have that type of technology today in the workplace, um, so it might still have its time at some point. Like I feel like it, it it'll happen. Like we're gonna have some sort of asynchronous video messaging at work. I just don't know how it's going to appear, and um, but it will happen at some point given what we see in the consumer world and given every consumer communication technology has come to work. Um, but the timing was wrong. So in our case at Helpful, we basically, uh, we, we basically spend about a year per product. I don't know if that's the right thing. I don't, and that was not the plan. The plan was not like, let's start a company and then every year we'll try a different product. Like It was like, we think this is the product. Let's try it. And it was only after the first year we're like, hey, we should pivot to this. And then after that next year, we pivoted again. Um, there's no real way to know. And it's unfortunate because you don't know if you stay on one thing and it might take off or you stay on one thing and it never takes off. And you've just been spending your time like kind of grinding against the stone the whole way. So I don't think I don't have a good answer. But I think um, one is just also having a view of the world and trying to understand. Like we felt like we had a pretty good view of the world and where it's going to go. We just got the timing wrong. 
So hard to know. It's hard to know. There's no answer. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I would love to. If you find out the answer, please <laughs> let me know. I don't know yeah, the absolutely. answer. Absolutely. I'll keep it secret. Yeah. <laughs> and um, finally, did you have investors in either of the companies um, that you were part of? Yeah. So yeah. So both companies had investors. Um, Extreme Labs. Um, we had some initial investors, plus I think like you know um, individuals invested. Uh, same with same with uh, helpful. We had like uh, like VCs who invested in us, uh, and then we also had uh, individual angels write us checks as well. Very cool. And were they all pro acquisition, or did they want your company to remain as is? Oh, that's a good growth? question. I think um, ultimately, what ends up happening in in both cases is you. And I've heard this advice from others as well. Is that you can give advice to founders. But ultimately, you want to be aligned with the founders, right? So, like for example, if we wanted to sell, but they didn't want to sell, and let's say, you know, let's say for for, for in some scenario, this wasn't the case with us, but let's say in some scenario, they have more board seats than you do, and they force like the sale not to go through, but the founders wanted the sale to go through. Like, I'm not sure how the company moves forward yeah. because the founders are not really aligned. Like, if they're feeling like, hey, either. Uh, I think this is a good deal. It's a nice alignment. Uh, we don't want to work on this anymore. Like whatever the reason is, um, so not being aligned, I think, is weird. Um, I've, obviously, it happens because you know that's why we have boards and votes and things like that. Um, but in both cases, like the the alignment made sense. And one question somebody asked me, like helpful acquisition is pretty new, but um, for Pivotal, for example, like would you do it again, right? 2013, and I absolutely think we would do it again. It was the exact right thing for the company. Um, it was the right alignment, and even knowing what I know about now, but helpfully, it was absolutely the right thing to do as well. Um, I don't think it was a lot. It wasn't contentious where we had like different people telling us different things, like you shouldn't do it. Um, uh, in either case, but it's a good question to ask because I, I'm sure it happens, um, and I'm guessing you want to be aligned. Now, I also invest in companies and uh, I advise people, and so. Um, typically, you want to get that alignment way before any kind of like board vote yeah. scenario. That makes sense. Awesome. All right. So we just have a few questions that we really like to ask everyone. Okay. Um, so what is your favorite thing that Toronto has that you don't believe any other city has? Uh, Toronto's underrated, I think, still. Mm -hmm. uh, what's amazing about Toronto recently is that a few people have now, or a few you know, institutions have now come to the fray, where, which put us on the global scale. And we're being more and more recognized for being like a, like a, a technology city. I, I think it's always been here. It's just now being more recognized. I still think it's way, way underrated. Um, and I think what I, want, what I want it to be, I don't know if this is an upcoming question, but what I want it to be is I want it to feel like, I want people to come here to charge their ambition, something Toby says. And I still think I go to San Francisco to charge my ambition. Okay. And I think it should be here. But um, I think that'll happen. So when, when one of your friends visits Toronto, mm -hmm. what's a place that you recommend that they check out? So um, I always tell people, like, the, so I think there are actually two types of cuisine here that people should check out. One is Hakka, which is like Chinese Indian food, which you can sort of get downtown, but mostly got to go to Scarborough. Um, and the other one is roti. Whether it's East Indian roti, West Indian roti, I tell them to like check out the food. Um, I don't know if there's any other landmarks. I literally mostly tell people go for the food because yeah. the food is really, really good in Toronto. And I know even when I travel to the U.S., they're like, oh, yeah, we come to Toronto for food. Yeah. It's yeah. just so many different types, too. It's yeah. just like Everywhere. every culture. And it's done right. A lot of places in the U.S. They, that have ethnic food, it's very much so Americanized. Yes. You yes. Know, it's mm -hmm. Yeah, you can really get hardcore food of any kind in Toronto, and so that's I typically tend people send people to those because I know the, that cuisine really well. 
Um, but there's it's every type of cuisine you can find here. Alrighty. And what was your very first job? Good question. So I'll tell you about two funny jobs at the beginning. My first job um, when I was, uh, I think, grade nine was I worked in my uncle's jean shop at Dufferin and Bloor. He had, like, sold jeans. And I did, obviously, like, inventory and everything like that. But I also sold, like, retail, sold jeans. And I made $3 an hour, which was under minimum wage even then. Because uh, I back then there was no internet, so I had to look it up in the library. That minimum wage was $4 an hour. And my dad gave me an extra dollar per hour just because he didn't want my uncle to pay. That was a funny job uh, and interesting job because you had to people would come in and say, like, you know, what, what size? Somebody, they don't know. What size am I? And I'd have to, like, as a 14-year-old, guess their size and get them to jeans. Um, my first uh, view into retail. And then I had a funny job in high school where I was, a, like, a nightclub frisker. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's something about, I think, being, like, small dude and, like, frisking people that is, like, unthreatening. And so, like, people would come into the clubs, and I would frisk them for weapons. <laughs> yeah, it was a weird, weird job. But At 16? Yeah, it was like, well, because it was a lot of, like, back then, there was lots of these, like, day oh, jams. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, and the under, yeah, under remember, all like, ages. high school. Oh, yeah, all the ages. all ages. Yeah, I used yeah, to, yeah, 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 I remember yeah. those, actually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and so somehow um, one of my friends was into promoting, whatever, and so I ended up hanging out with him. And then ended up, I would go to clubs, and, and what was funny about that, too, is the club scene is quite small in terms of people who work there, so people knew me. So I could get, actually, after as I got older, people knew me and I could get into any club because they'd be like, oh, this person works at so-and-so club. And there you go, the perks. Uh, for any entrepreneur out there that's thinking about doing what uh, you are doing, what are the first steps they should take? So this is an, a very important question because I think people start, it's not wrong to start and say, I want to go work at a small company or I want to start a company. I don't think those are wrong. That's just not what I did. What I did was, what we talked about at the beginning, was I came up with a framework. And I think that it makes sense for most people to think about what is it that they value. And I'll give you an example, actually. I had a friend who unfortunately had a family member in hospital, and he was working at a startup. And he's and, and hospital was in the U.S., and so unfortunately he had to start paying for the family members, like, medical bills. So he came to me and said, hey, I'm at this startup. Like, what do I do? I'm like, well, your framework, you have to write your framework down. Number one right now is cash. So if cash is your number one, you probably, it doesn't make sense for you to have a equity and cash mix at a startup because you need cash today, unfortunately. And it's not a bad thing to say that you need cash today because you've got this situation. So I advise them to go work at a big company that has very little like bonus and, and equity and lots of cash because um, that's what you need right now. And that framework made sense for him at the time. And now luckily everything's okay and now he's able to go back to startups because that's what he wanted. But for me, I said, I want to work with the smartest people I can find in high fidelity. And that may not be start a company. That might be um, go work at um, a company like, you know, for example, I talked to lots of people about joining Shopify. There's extremely sharp people here and that are entrepreneurial because we're like the entrepreneur company, right? Um, you, don't, you can get that uh, experience working at Shopify. You may end up at Microsoft or Google or Amazon, wherever it is. Um, because your framework helped you kind of make that decision. So I would say for people who um, are entrepreneurial, it doesn't, you don't have to start a company. Actually, I can go on a whole rant about why I don't like the word entrepreneurship, but, uh, or entrepreneur. But I think what matters is you have to, you should come up with a framework that makes sense for you. And it might be, like an example was Daniel knew he wanted to start a company. That's not wrong, that just wasn't my approach. So I think the thing for people to figure out is what is it that you want to optimize for? If it's freedom, and you want to, you know, 
uh, try to go, you know, do the hardest thing possible, start a company. Like if, if those are the things that really uh, get you excited, go and do that. But if your framework look, was look more like mine, like, hey, I want to work with the smartest people I can find, you might not have to start a company. So I think it just depends on, and I, I think the other thing is, I don't think people shouldn't call that person an entrepreneur, right? You're still an entrepreneur. You're doing things, in, even if it's inside of a company. So that's a, that's a different debate. Very cool. Awesome. Well, thank you so, so much for hosting us here today and speaking with us. Um, so I really appreciate it. Thank you. No problem. Thanks for yeah. having me. Thank you. It was like a lot of really insightful answers. And it was like, it was really good. Thank you. Anytime. We wanted to thank you so much for coming in. We had such a great time interviewing you for Floater Founder. And thank you so much to our listeners. We are so excited to share more founder stories with you. Until Until next time. time.